0: All right, so I, this is um, we've got this week and next week in Isaiah. Um, we're going to get through chapter twelve, and then we're going to take a break for Christmas. We're going to do a Christmas series through the month of December, and then um, we'll get back into Isaiah uh, after the after Christmas. So, so we got a couple more uh, weeks here, uh, and then we'll we'll change gears briefly. Um, but here's where we're at this. This passage is really all about God's grace, which is, is an interesting thing because if you remember last week, it was all about God's anger. Uh, God was expressing his anger at the sins of his people. He was expressing how his anger was going to lead to their judgment, to the fact that he was gonna call out the Assyrians to come in and take them. To, to scatter them, to send them into exile, uh, to drive them from the land. And so we left off left last week with, with not a lot of hope in the passage itself, except that we, we looked at how does God satisfy his anger, right? What, is, what does God do for us, which we all deserve the same thing that the Israelites deserved as well. We deserve God's anger. We deserve his judgment. And, and yet what we know in the gospel is that Jesus satisfies the anger of God by becoming uh, our propitiation, this this object of God's wrath that the Bible tells us Jesus was. And so we looked at that, um, but the passage itself didn't have a lot of hope in it in Isaiah, but this this one does. And this is what I love about Isaiah is that he sort of oscillates between uh, judgment and grace. He He just kind of goes back and forth because God is both just and gracious and merciful. And and so even in the midst of his anger, it's not anger that, that drives his people away forever. It's it's anger that leads to their restoration and their hope. And that's what we get to see today. So today it's all good news. It's all good news for, for Israel, although it's going to be, um, you know, kind of mixed into this season of hardship, uh, which, is, which is how it tends to work. So let's look at verse uh, 20. Uh, we're gonna go through the rest of chapter 10 to kind of make the first main way that God displays his grace. Um, it's gonna be laid out in verse 20 through 34. And, and we're gonna see three different ways that God displays his grace to his people in this passage. All right, so let's read it. Um, hang in there, it's kind of long. So, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as sand, of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. My anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip when he has struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Ahath. He has passed through Migron. At Migmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Gibeah, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughters of Gallium, Give attention, O Lashia. O poor Ananoth! Medmian is in flight. The the inhabitants of Gibeah flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughters of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs of the terrifying power, uh, with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. That's a lot and we're not gonna talk about every single word in there, but here's the point that that we need to get to. Um, In the midst of God saying a lot of things about this upcoming invasion from the Assyrians, this passage is a promise that God will display his grace to his people in that he is going to preserve them. He's not going to allow them to be utterly destroyed, to be completely wiped away. He's going to preserve a remnant of his people from this uh, invasion. God is displaying His grace because even though um, all of them deserve the judgment that they're going to receive, and all of them deserve, in fact, to die because of their sins, because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is is death. E- even though that's what they deserve, that's not what they all receive. They receive some of them will receive mercy, will be saved, will be spared, and will ultimately be brought back to their land. And so we see here that God is displaying his grace through preserving his people. And, and we, we believe here that um, the Old Testament is a, a, a way to point us to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Right? The things that are happening in the, New Te- in the Old Testament are preparing us for what will ultimately be seen in Jesus. And so how does this truth of God bringing about a remnant of his people, how does this point us to Jesus? That's the question that we should ask. Um, And and here's, I think, the answer to that question. It is that in Jesus, his people are preserved, though they don't deserve it, and didn't earn it. You and I, if left to our own devices, would be totally out. We We would have left this thing a long time ago, we would, we would have thrown in the towel. We, we would have just given up if we had even started to begin with. And yet what we know is that God is at work just as much as he was in the days of Isaiah. He's at work in his church and in preserving a people for himself. He is at work in keeping our hearts close to his. He's, he's holding us in that. <clears throat> Let me just take you to a passage. We're going to kind of bounce back and forth between the Old and New Testament today. So go ahead and look at John chapter 10. And this is where I think while there's many places we could could point to to talk about the preserving power of of Jesus, um, John 10 is probably the most succinct and clear of all. Um, John 10, 27 through 29. um, Here's... Uh, what it says. Oops, I flipped one page too far. There we go. Um, Here's what Jesus says. These are the words of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, given this, these sheep, these people, to Jesus, <coughs> is greater than all. The Father is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He, here's what Jesus is telling us in this. He's making a very important point that we all need to hear. That if we belong to Jesus, he is holding us securely to himself. This, this is something that we all need to recognize because it's something that we are so often tempted to believe, that we, we somehow have been convinced that though we are saved by grace, apart from our works, that somehow that doesn't give us security. And what, what we tend to believe and what the enemy will tend to whisper to us particularly in our moments of temptation and difficulty, he'll, t- he'll whisper these things to us. He'll say something along the lines of, uh, you're, you're going to lose this. You're, you're out. God, God can't love you anymore. God won't care for you eternally. These are, these are lies that are, that are slipping into our hearts. Um, and what we need to do to combat those lies are, is, is to lean into the words of Jesus, who tells us the truth. He speaks the truth to us, and what he says is simply this, that I, I will hold them, and no one will snatch them from my hand. He, he then doubles down on this. It's not just that Jesus is holding us, but he also then brings in God the Father, and he says, God the Father who has given them to me, given the people that Jesus has, have we've been given to Jesus by the Father. God has given us to Jesus, and he says that this, the Father in heaven is greater than all. He's greater than all. He's greater than you. He's greater than me. He's greater than anything dark or sinister or evil. He's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then Jesus makes this amazing statement in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Jesus is equal with the Father as is the Spirit. We believe in a Trinitarian God, a God of, of three persons and one God. And while that's hard to understand, uh, Jesus very clearly here identifies himself as God. Um, and we know that he's identifying himself as God because in the next verse, it says that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why, th- this was a death penalty statement that Jesus just made. He declared that he and the Father are one, meaning that he is equal in essence and substance with the Father and the, and the Jewish leaders around him listening to him say this, we're going to kill him because that's blasphemy if it's not true. But it is true in Jesus' case. And so he, he over and over again, Jesus declares himself to be God. And he does it in different ways and with different uh, um, statements. But this is one of those amazing things that Jesus is God And he is holding on to you and me. He is preserving us. And here's the thing we got to hear. If it were not for this preserving power of Jesus, every one of us would be lost. Every one of us would be lost and doomed to judgment and hell. And it would be horrendous. That's the truth, and that's the hard truth. But this is the beauty of the gospel that though we deserve nothing but judgment and wrath, God has given us and extended to us His grace, His mercy, and through Jesus has made a way for us to be forgiven, but also to be held, to be held on to. And there's another thing that Paul says in the New Testament though, that says, though, that He who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. That the one who began this work of salvation in your life will be faithful to complete it. And so if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus, you probably um, have at times, as I have at times, struggled with the assurance of our salvation. And we struggle with assurance because we know and recognize our sin. And, and sometimes we have a hard time getting our sin, uh, the sins that we commit on a daily basis, to reconcile with the fact that we're Christians. And we should be like, well, we're, we shouldn't sin anymore. Well, that's, that's just not the reality of life here on earth. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. He says, uh, he talks about this confliction of the old man and the new man and, and how the, these, these are warring against each other in his in his soul. Um, We we know that there is a confliction at times between what we know to be true and what we know we should do and how we actually live. But let's not forget that our salvation is not based on works. And so our security in Christ cannot be based on works. It just can't be. If God saves us by grace, then he's going to keep us by grace not because we've earned it or deserved it. And I think a lot of us, and I know as a pastor, I've, I've met with a lot, of, a lot of people over the years, uh, pastoring this church and in, in my previous churches as well, is you, you meet with people that are really struggling with, am I secure in Christ? I did this thing, and they'll confess to me what they may have done, and they'll say, I, I don't think Jesus can love me because I did this a lot of people have sat in my office and have said those things to me or a version of that and and i've always had to look at them and go do you care about that like do you care that that you're going to be damned to hell for your sin and they say well yeah i care about that then i said well you're probably a christian then <laughs> because most people don't care if they're not christians if it bothers you it's an indication that the that the word of god is working in your heart and and transforming your life. Because if you were not a regenerate, changed, transformed human being by the grace of God, you would not care what God thinks of you. You just wouldn't. And, and there was a point in time when you didn't. But when you come to Christ, the fact that we are conflicted, the fact that we do struggle with, with whether or not we're in or out, is a, actually is an indication that we are um, truly regenerate. And um, that confliction is something that we need to then battle with the truth. Words like Romans 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And that comes at the tail end of, of Paul's whole thing in chapter 7 about how much he's still a sinner. And so then Paul begins to preach the gospel to his heart and go, Well, you know what? Yeah, I am a sinner, but there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It is the, it is the preserving power of Jesus that keeps us in and keeps us secure. He holds us, He hangs on to us, He keeps us in Himself. He's doing that for Israel. As well, Um, and this picture of the remnant that of Israel that's going to return and be saved through this invasion from Assyria is an is a shadow of what would be the true reality of Jesus securing His people forever, and so we see that His grace is displayed here in that preservation. We also are going to see the next thing here, and look look at verse uh, chapter eleven, verse one. We'll move on to the second way that God shows his grace to his people in this passage. And, um, and here, it's really, um, I guess I said there were three things. I guess there are, when I'm thinking about it now. Going, there's really two main categories in this, but, but we'll, we'll look at verse one. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So here, here's, this is kind of an interesting verse, um, but let's, let's hear it in the context. Um, verse 34 of the prior chapter says that God is going to cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And, and Lebanon will, be, will fall by the majestic one. There's this imagery of a forest that's being cut down and laid bare. That's the imagery that God's using. And out of that imagery, continuing with that imagery, he says this, he gives us this promise that there shall come from, uh, come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Here's, here's the promise of the gospel that, Jesus, that God is giving his people back here in Isaiah's day. It's this promise that God is going to, even, even through their, their destruction, through their, uh, their judgment, God is going to preserve for them the line of King David. That's what he's talking about. See, Jesse is the father of David. If you don't know that, that's, that's who we're talking about. So this stump of a tree that was once the house of Jesse, where David came and, and became the king, um, this stump that's been cut down, out of it, it says that a, branch, a, a shoot will come from this and a branch from the roots will bear fruit. God is promising his people that, that there will be a preserved line of David so that the Messiah would come into the world. It's so that the world would, would have the rescuer that they need. And the promise of this Rescue w- was given through the line of David. And King David was going to um, have someone from his family sit on the throne forever and ever. And, and God wasn't promising an earthly king on the throne in forever and ever, but he's talking about a messianic king who would one day sit eternally on the throne and that Jesus would be that king. We see this uh, this promise of grace through, through preserving this line that would lead to Jesus. And um, we see it um, articulated in a couple of places in the New Testament. Um, we see it in Acts chapter 13, if you want to turn there. Acts 13, verse uh, let's see. <clears throat> Paul's preaching here. Um, we'll start in verse. Um, how about we start in verse 21? And it says, this. Then, then, G- and what, basically, what's happening is Paul's giving a history of Israel and the kings of Israel, uh, and it says so. They asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when God had removed Saul, He raised up David to be their king, of whom He testified and said. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. Now here's the key, verse 23. Of this man's offspring, of, of, Je- of David and Jesse, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And so, he, as he promised, that's the key that Paul's hitting on. There is this promise that God would bring forth from Jesse and David and all the rest of the, of the Davidic kings, this this Savior, the this, this Savior who, who Paul identifies as Jesus. He's Jesus. And, and then we, we see it just as clearly, if not even more clearly, in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Matthew 1, if you have ever tried to read the New Testament, it's just starting in Matthew, you may have noticed that the... Um, the New Testament starts, the very first book of the New Testament starts with basically what amounts to a, a, a phone book. Uh, you're just reading like names. And it's like, what is the point of all of this? This is, this is a genealogy. And not exactly the most riveting way to start something, but, but certainly an important one. <clears throat> and so here's, here's how Matthew shows and displays and demonstrates the fact that Jesus is from the line of David. And he's trying to make this point because the, we, we need to know that God keeps his promises. And so it starts with uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes from Abraham, and it talks about Isaac and Jacob, and and then all their kids. And and then you get to David, the father of Solomon. And then it goes through a bunch of the names of of David's kids, and we actually see in this um, some of the kings that we've encountered and some that we will encounter through Isaiah. We see in verse 9, or verse 8 and 9, Uzziah, if you remember that, Uzziah was the king that that was in power when Isaiah was called to his prophetic ministry, and he died the first year that Isaiah was a prophet. So he had Isaiah, the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was a couple weeks back we looked at Ahaz and how afraid he was of this in, upcoming Assyrian uh, invasion and then Ahaz is the father of Hezekiah well Isaiah's going to deal a lot with Hezekiah which we'll get to All right so it goes on and on and on about more and more of these names <coughs> and then you get to this time of deportation to Babylon which is the judgment that we're talking about um, part of it um, you had Assyria and you had and Babylon these are both Um, times when Israel was taken into captivity. And then it says this, verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the the Christ, 14 generations. And so again, we're just seeing God's sovereign hand working His grace through through history through all of these things, all these generations, 14, 14, 14 generations, through all these things, but ultimately culminating in Jesus. And this is a great thing because the grace of God is displayed predominantly through Jesus. And that's what the rest of chapter 11 is going to take us to. It's going to show us this, this shoot that's coming from the stump of Jesse, this, this thing that is going to come out of the the ashes of destruction. God is going to preserve his people, and and then he's going to give them their Messiah. And the rest of this chapter is going to describe what he'll be like. And so let's look at verse 2 and really just work our way through it. There's several things that it shows us about Jesus. Let's look at verse 2 through 5. It says, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Upon who? Well, this this shoot, this branch from the stump of Jesse. "'The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, "'and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, "'the Spirit of counsel and might, "'the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. "'And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. "'He shall not judge by what he sees "'or decide disputes by what his ears hear, "'but with righteousness he shall judge the poor "'and decide with equity for the meek of the earth.'" And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. All right, so here's the here's what we're being told about Jesus in this. Um, this is a obviously a picture of the Messiah that we know from the New Testament is Jesus. So What Isaiah is talking about here is Jesus, though he may not know him by that name, he may not understand fully what this is going to be. He gives us the the bullet points, the the primary things about him. And here's the first thing we see, that Jesus Christ was empowered by the Spirit and he was perfect for us. It's talking about this perfect Spirit-led man who would be our Savior, it talks about the spirit of the Lord will resting resting upon him, giving him wisdom, giving him counsel, giving him knowledge, right? And, but then it says this, that the delight, his delight, the delight of this, this savior will be the fear of the Lord. He will delight in who God is. He will not judge the way that we judge. He won't be like us at all in those things. He's gonna be fair and, and have equality. And it says here in verse five, righteousness will be the belt of his waist. Faithfulness, the belt of his loins. This idea that he is perfect and righteous and everything is held up by his righteousness and perfection. We actually see this um, displayed in Jesus very clearly. Um, We see that he was this perfect man who never sinned, never strayed from the Lord's will, never did anything for selfish interests. And again, we could talk about that all day and say, uh, give you thousands of different references. But let me just show you what Jesus himself says about himself in this. If you turn to Luke chapter four. Whoa, I turned to it right there. That was amazing. I don't even have a bookmark there. That was great. Luke 4, 18 through 21. so really, verse 17, uh, we'll start. Here, here, here's where we're at. Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's been baptized. Um, the Spirit of God has descended upon him uh, at his baptism. He went off into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights of temptation, where he came out of it without having committed any sin. And then he goes uh, to begin his preaching ministry, the ministry of preaching. And he goes to his hometown He begins by going to Nazareth, to the synagogue that he grew up in. And he he gets there, and it says in verse 17 that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now he's going to quote, not from our passage, but from chapter 61, but you're going to hear some very similar things uh, in what we've just read about him and what chapter 61 says about him. And, and here's what it says. He's going to read from the scroll. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's, that, that talks about the empowering work of the Spirit of God. And it says, Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he, he finds this passage in Isaiah, he reads it, and, and then he gives a sermon about it. And it's an amazing sermon because it's only one sentence long. And that's, that's what we all wish for. Um, but verse 20, it says, He rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all the eyes of the, on the, of the synagogue were fixed on him. They're just like, okay, is this it? Well, are you just going to read, read this passage and sit down? And then it says this, verse 21, And he began to say to them, Here's here's his sermon on that text. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's just a mic drop. Just boom. Like, I'm done. This is me. You you want the application to this text? You're looking at him. That's what he's saying. He's like, "This, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the thing that Isaiah had prophesied about hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And here he is. He's right here in your church. He's sitting there ready ready for you guys to believe in him. that's what he's saying to his people in Nazareth and they didn't they didn't believe it. Uh, so they rejected him is ultimately what happens in this but but that's an amazing sermon for Jesus to preach. see Jesus can preach those kind of sermons because he's Jesus right and he can just drop the mic and and you know move on i I don't have that ability so here's the thing with with this he's giving them this reality that was promised in both chapter 11 and chapter 16 and probably in some others as well through Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon this man. He's empowered by the spirit to be perfect and to do all these amazing things, to set free people, to, to bring good news to those who need it. And Jesus says, that's me, guys. You're looking at him. What an awesome day that would have been but their hearts were hard and they didn't hear it and they didn't want to believe it. And, they, and part of that was because they knew him when he was a child. And they were like, eh, aren't you like the kid that grew up with Mary and Joseph? I don't, I don't know about this. Um, but that's another topic for another day. So what we're seeing here first in chapter 11 is that the Spirit empowered Jesus to be perfect for us. See, that, that's good news. Because you and I can't be perfect. We can't be. You've probably tried and you failed, as have I. I. And so what we need is someone else to be perfect and stand in our place before God. And that's what Jesus does. Let's keep looking, though. 11, back to chapter 11, uh, verse 6 through 9. says this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy, for in my holy mountain, the the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Now that's a picture of a world that we don't understand anything about. What's being described here? You've got wolves and lambs hanging out together. That doesn't happen in our world. Like we famously wolves and lambs are not friends, right? We know that. Um, you have leopards and goats. I don 't know if leopards like goat, but I 'm sure that they would. Um, I obviously do because it 's here. Um, the, then you have this little child leading these little baby cows and these lions and these leopards and these wolves. Um, and this child just leading them all, going, "Hey, come on, come with me." What in the world is going on here? You've got cows and bears hanging out together in the same pasture. You've got babies, infants, nursing children, um, just hanging out by cobra's nests. <laughs> not a good idea. Don't put your kids by the cobra's nest. A wean child, so I think that's probably more like a toddler, like, you know, toddler, a little older, but not, not still uh, an adult or a teenager or anything. He's hanging out with the adders in their den. And then you've got this promise that they won't be hurt or destroyed. This, they won't be. And all the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. What is Isaiah telling us? What is the Lord telling us through Isaiah? Well, he's telling us this, that the Messiah came into the world, the Savior of the world came to heal what is broken in the world. He's gonna restore everything that's gone wrong. You see, when the world was created and Adam and Eve were just hanging out and no, no sin was in the world. They just It was them and Jesus and, and a bunch of animals, and they all got along. Everybody got along. There, there, were, there was no problems. There was no pain. There was no death. There was, there was nothing going on that could frighten or scare or, or cause this tension. And, and yet we know that that's not the world we live in. We live in a world that is not that way, uh, and it's a world that, in fact, has um, been totally uh shattered and we have this this is the thing but jesus came into the world to do something about it to heal what is broken and and i don't really have a a particular text in the new testament that i could take you to i could take you to basically any gospel passage in matthew mark luke and john and show you that this is what jesus is doing It's it's what he's doing throughout his whole earthly ministry. It's why Jesus emphasized so much of his time healing people, feeding people, delivering people. He was doing all these things to show on a prototype level what he will do on a grand scale level at his return that he's mending the world that's been broken. That's why Jesus takes the blind people and gives them sight. It's why he takes the deaf people and gives them ears to hear. It's why he can take people who can't walk and give them... Le- he does all of this in his earthly life because he's displaying the reality that he can and will one day fully restore the world to the way it should be. And, and that's, that's what he does. And we know that in the ultimate uh, you know, kingdom that he's going to establish, that this description in Isaiah is the world we're going to live in again good news one more thing let's look at verse uh, 10 through 16 and here's where we go it says in that day the root of jesse shall stand as a signal for all the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious in that day the lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations. He will assemble the banished of Israel, the gather and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath. and It will strike it with seven channels. He will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Now Jesus is talking about two things to us here today and one of them is the, um, the ultimate recovery of his people from, from this um, um, judgment and this dispersion. He is describing the fact that he's gonna call them all back and he does, he does that and by the time Jesus is on the scene, the, the people were no longer scattered, they were back in their land. Um, so that's one hand, but there is a, a greater thing at play here, and I think it's demonstrated in verse 10. It says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the promise of God's grace in this text that Jesus is going to extend his grace to all people. He's going to s- extend his grace to everyone. Not just the, the nation of Israel that he was dealing with in this moment, but there will come a day when the Messiah would draw all people to himself, all kinds of people. Not every single person, but all kinds of people from every language, tribe, tongue, nation on the earth. And in fact, we see Jesus promise this very thing in John chapter 12. And again, we could look at, man, a lot of passages that make this point. But John chapter 12, um, verse 32, is probably the clearest that I'll take us to today. And I think it's helpful because in the context, Jesus is talking about his, his death on the cross. That's what he's talking about. He's preparing his disciples for his upcoming death on the cross. But then he tells them what's going to happen when he dies on the cross. Verse 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. Jesus says this to his people. When I am lifted up from the earth, when I'm hung on that cross, all the people of the earth are going to be drawn to me. And isn't that exactly what happens? Jesus is crucified. And and suddenly, in the book of Acts these people who had really no context at all for a a Messiah, for a Savior, who weren't a part of the people of Israel, all of a sudden they're being told about this crucified God who died for their sins and they're being drawn to Jesus in such numbers that the early church doesn't even know what to do with it. And they start struggling with how do we navigate this? We got a bunch of people coming in who have no context for our, our belief system and they're not... You know, they're, they're not really a part of us. Where do, they, where do they belong? And the whole point of the New Testament from the book of Acts onward is to show that God is drawing all people to himself. He's drawing people from every place on earth and he continues to do it. You and I are testament to this. You and I are uh, people who live in 2019, in the United States of America, like what would we know about Jesus if it were not for his grace to display his kindness to all of us? You and I know Jesus because he extends his grace to us and he does that through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. You and I are are beneficiaries of Jesus's death because it makes a way for us to be drawn in and have a place to be with him. You and I have this grace that is undeserved and unearned and it's all through the death of Christ. And when you think about it, the this this whole theology of the Christian life which is that God becomes a man and then dies a brutal death on a Roman cross is crazy. It sounds crazy. But but the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that that is a, it's scandalous and it's foolish to people who don't believe it. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This foolish message of the gospel that sinners can be made right with Jesus because he died on a cross and rose again is the greatest thing that we can cling to, and it is the very power of God to save us if we believe. I hope you believe. I hope you've trusted in this because it's extended to you. The, the grace of God is for you. We just have to believe it and embrace it. And we don't have to earn it or deserve it. We don't have to check the boxes to make sure we're good enough. We, are just, we just have to reach out and, and receive what he's giving. Let's do that. Let's make sure we do that. And let's live as if it's true. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your great grace to us. It's, it's been preserved by you. It's been secured in you. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. And for all of these things, we are um, so unworthy and yet so grateful. We, we pray that the remainder of our time would give you great praise today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.